Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Our context is this. In the first part of Romans 4, Paul talks about how Abraham was justified by faith, not by being circumcised, not by the law. Because he believed God and was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15 when he made the covenant, and it was 14 or 15 years later that he was circumcised. Therefore, during that 14 or 15 years, he was still justified, but he wasn't circumcised. And so therefore, you believing Jews, or you Jews who want to believe in God and be justified, you don't have to be circumcised to do it. Now, in the last part of the chapter, he's going to move from just the Jews being justified by faith, but also the Gentiles. And that faith is going to spread all over the world. Because Abraham's going to be the father of us all, Jews and Gentiles, who believe. So we'll start now in Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham, Paul says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, his seed, that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now that for there means because. It's referring back to verse 12, which says that he became the father of the circumcised, the Jews who were not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, in that 14 or 15 years between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, between the giving of the covenant and the circumcision, Jews believed in Abraham then, and so it was faith that got them justified. And Abraham became the father of those who believed. And verse, therefore, verse 13, because of that, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but it was through the Jews believing. And likewise... The promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that his descendants would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that that comes by faith. So that's the theme of this section of Romans 4, righteousness that comes by faith, not by the law apart from the works of the law. Now, this promise to Abraham and his descendants that he would inherit the world, I just said that was in Genesis 15. Actually, it's not explicit in there. It's implicit. God's promises to Abraham didn't include the world, as the NIV Study Bible says. The three explicit promises were this, a promise of land, and land is part of the world, not the whole world, seed, descendants, and blessings to the world. So there was not really a direct promise that Abraham's descendants would inherit the world. But, however, as the NIV Study Bible and Steve Ackerson point out, the promise to inherit the world is implicit in those three explicit promises of land, offspring, and blessing. Because if you have land, if you have offspring, you have blessings to the world, that means you're going to inherit the world. So we're not going to quibble over that. Now, I can also point to some scriptures that make it sound like the promises sort of explicitly that Abraham is going to cover, inherit the world. Abraham's descendants are going to inherit the world, his faith descendants. Genesis 17:4. as for me, my covenant is with you. As for me, God, my God, covenant is with you, Jews, Abraham, excuse me. You will become the father of many nations. Now, if God explicitly promises to Abraham that he's going to be the father of many nations, that sounds like Abraham's descendants are going to inherit the world, does it not? Adam Clark says this, quote, Abraham is here represented as having all the world given to him as his inheritance. Because in him, all the nations of the earth are blessed. Many nations, not just one nation of the Jews, but many nations, God tells Abraham in Genesis seventeen fourteen, My covenant is with you. You will become the father of many nations. Now, that to me seems like it refers to the whole world, at least in the sense of all the people that were all kinds of people in the world. It doesn't mean everybody individually, of course, but Mongolians, Singaporeans, Canadians, and so forth. 
many nations. That word many, I haven't looked it up here in Genesis 17.4, at least the Septuagint translation of it, but many can mean all, or it can just mean a lot. Here it can very, mean, very well mean all. I think you will become the father of all nations. But at any rate, Genesis 17.4 and the three land offspring and blessings promises in Genesis 15 implies the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's promise is when Christ's kingdom covers the earth. And that's what Paul is aiming at here, of course. The good news of where all this is going, where Abraham's faith eventually eventuated. Now, apparently, the Jews of Paul's days had stretched the promise to include the whole physical world. Abraham would inherit the physical world, so the Jews were going to rule the whole physical world. Now, Paul, according to Cranfield, the commentator Cranfield, Paul apparently assumes the Jews believe that Abraham's offspring would uncover the whole physical world because Paul just says it without further explanation. They were wrong, of course. Paul meant all the world would believe in Jesus, not that the Jews would occupy every nook and cranny on, on the physical planet. All right, so, the descent, and who are the descendants of Abraham? Of course, you have, this is Reisinger's four seeds of Abraham. You've got his natural physical descendants, that's Jews and Arabs. You've got his special natural descendants, that's just Jews. You've got his spiritual descendants, all who believe, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And then you've got the one descendant, the capital S seed descendant, Jesus. Well, here, Paul is obviously talking about his descendants, meaning all those who believe in Jesus. All those who have faith are the children of Abraham, are the descendants of Abraham. And these descendants are going to inherit the world, not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. That's the, con that's the constant contrast that Paul makes all the way through the book of Romans. Law on one hand, righteousness that comes by faith. Law, works of the law, sin, death, wrath. All that's on one side. On the other hand, righteousness, faith, justification. That's on the other hand. Never the twain shall meet. So Paul here is saying that all the world would eventually believe in Jesus. He says that again in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. So no one should boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Paul is telling Christians that everything is yours. Now this is amazing because the Christians were a small, persecuted minority when Paul wrote this. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present and things to come, everything is yours. Folks, think about that. Didn't Jesus say the meek are going to inherit the earth? <laughs> and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So everything's ours. So we need to be patient when things don't look so good down here. It's all coming, folks. We go to Romans 4.14. If those who are of the law are heirs, heirs of the world, if those who are of the law, that means Jewish people who are keeping the Old Testament law, or trying to, or having it but not keeping it, if those who are made of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is canceled. And what Paul here is doing is continuing his contrast between the law, circumcision, and faith, which Abraham had when he made the covenant promise with God even before he was circumcised. And, all, and of course, Abraham was years, half a millennium almost, before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So why are you trying to say that you inherit the world through Mosaic law? No. It comes through faith. Abraham believed and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness and he's going to inherit the world and his descendants. But if you're going to insist on saying that salvation and justification are from the law and that's how you become heirs of God, well then you have just canceled faith and promise and the promises that came through Abraham. And one of those promises were you're going to inherit the world. The summary, the summary statement of the three promises to Abraham is those who believe in God are going to inherit the world, and you just canceled that. You just lost your inheritance of the world. And faith is made empty. That means null, void, of no use. 
And this is binary. It's either law or faith. It's not a little bit of law and a little bit of faith. It's one or the other. How does the law make faith empty? Because the law brings wrath, not justification. Romans 3.20. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. You want to get justified? Forget the law. Now, in verse 14 here in Romans 4, Paul says, If those who are of the law are heirs, he's talking about Jews who are relying on Jews, not, not, not believing Jews, but non-believing Jews who are relying on the law of Moses, those who are of the law, those Jews who believe in Moses. The promise is canceled. What promise is he talking about? The promise that, that descendants of Abraham are going to inherit the world. It's gone. We go to verse 15 in Romans 4. For the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, the first part of that verse is very easy to understand. The law produces wrath. How does the law produce wrath? In two ways. The first way is the law reveals sin and makes it known to the sinner. Therefore, the sinner knows, I'm going to experience wrath here because I just sinned. That's the first way. It, it gives knowledge of, of sin. The second way that the law produces wrath is it actually stimulates sin and makes you sin more, of course, which means you're going to the more you sin, the more wrath you're going to get. Now, the classic scripture that shows that is in Romans 7, 7 through 11. As I read this passage, I'll point out to, the, point out to you the two aspects of the law that produces wrath. The first is knowledge, making sin known to the sinner. And the third is making sin spring up in the heart of the sinner. So we read now Romans 7, verses 7 through 11. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin. There's no knowing sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet the law if the law had not said do not covet. So there is the function of the law is to make sin known in, in the sinner's heart. Now verse 8 in Romans 7. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Paul picks up one aspect of the law of coveting and says when the law says don't covet, that produces in him the desire to covet. Coveting of every kind. He wants, he's, he's coveting everything that somebody's got. His bass boat, his Z28, whatever. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. I was just sinning merely. I, you know, I didn't realize what I was doing was wrong. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. It's just like when the mother tells the little child, "Don't put your hand in the cookie jar, Junior," and the cookie start. The kid starts thinking, "I want those cookies so bad." The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Yeah, sin. The law produces sin, and sin produces death. Now, that's the easy part of that verse. Now, let's go to the second part of the verse. It's not so easy. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. I've wondered for years why did Paul throw that line in there. It didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but I will give you some options, two options, basically. This option is from Steve Ackerson, my good friend. He says that what Paul is saying here is that where there is no law and there is no law against the promise... There is no transgression. So if you believe in the promise, promises of God to Abraham who appropriated, who appropriated those promises by faith, and if you also have faith, there is no transgression. You're not sinning if you believe in the promise. But if you hold on to the law as for your justification, you are sinning and, in fact, having sin produced in you. Now, I think that's reasonable, but I really don't think that's what Paul meant here. I, I think that Barnes's, the commentator Barnes's idea is better and he's saying, look, if there's no law in one's life, there will be no sin in, sin in one's life stirred up by the law. 
In other words, when Paul says, and where there is no law, there's no transgression, he's saying, hey, if you don't have law in your life, there's no transgression and there's not going to be any sin stirred up. But guess what? There is law because I've just spent the first chapter of Romans and chapter 2, I think, part of chapter 2, talking about how the Gentiles are law unto themselves. They have their consciences accusing them and excusing them as they think about whether something's right or not. So there's a law for the Gentiles, and of course there's a law for the Jews, the law of Moses. And so therefore, any Gentile or Jew living in the law is going to have wrath stirred up. So when Paul says in verse 15 in Romans 4, and when there is no law, there's no transgression, but the bad news is there is law, so therefore there is transgression, and the law produces wrath. I think that fits the verse better. So we're going to go now to Romans 4, verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith, as opposed to law. This is why the promise is by faith. What is the this? Well, that the law produces wrath, <laughs> and that's bad. And so that's why, and the promise is good that you inherit the world. So that's why we, we want to stay away from the law that produces wrath. We want the promise, which is by faith. This, the fact that the law brings wrath, is why the promise is by faith. So that it, it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only those to those who are of the law, that would be believing Jews, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith, that would be Gentiles. He is the father of us all, meaning he's the father of Jews and he's the father of Gentiles, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Now notice when Paul says the promise is by faith, he immediately mentions the word grace. The promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace. Faith and grace go together. They're two sides of the same coin. The famous scripture here is Ephesians 2.8, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Now, of course, people debate on what it is. Well, it's, uh, faith is the nearest antecedent, so the it is faith. Faith is God's gift, so faith comes through grace. And, of course, grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but God gives us faith. We respond to, the, to God when he gives us faith, and we believe in him. Now, an analogy I like to use is water in an aqueduct. I think of the mountains of Xinjiang in western China. They, it's real dry out there, but it's, the mountains are very high. There's a lot of snow on it. And so they have these these rock troughs coming from way up the top of the mountain all the way down. So you go out there in the middle of the summer, and it's dry, and nothing but desert everywhere and rocks. And all of a sudden you see all this this cold, clear water rushing down and accurate. Actually, it's like being wasted to me, just kind of all over the place. So... This is the analogy. That aqueduct is is faith. It's the means how the water, which is grace, how the water, the life-giving water, gets to people. It's not going to get to anybody unless you believe. You have to believe, and then the grace comes. Now, I know Arminians and Calvinists will debate on what comes first, faith or grace. I won't get into that. I've got my own particular opinions on that. But the point is, is that the two go together. You believe, and then God's grace saves you. Here's a quote from Adam Clark, quote, It should be well observed that faith and grace do mutually and necessarily infer each other. For the grace and favor of God in its own nature requires faith in us, and faith on our part in its own nature supposes the grace or favor of God. In other words, the two sides of the same coin, like I said, he just says it better than me. Now, Paul, in Romans 4.16, our verse that we're looking at now, said that he, Abraham, Abraham who believed by faith, is the father of us all, of us all. So faith, the faith man, Abraham, is the father of us all who also have faith. And so when he says of us all, he means of us all who have faith. He's not talking about unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. He's talking about believing Jews and believing Gentiles. 
Now, this verse, that Abraham is the father of us all, is a summary of verses 11 through 12 in Romans 4, which we ended up on in our last audio. Those verses read this way, And he, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. That's in Genesis 15. He wasn't circumcised in Genesis 17, so he believed when he was uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised. That would be the, the Gentiles. We believe but we're not circumcised because Gentiles generally back then weren't circumcised. So that righteousness may be credited to them also. Righteousness may be credited to the Gentiles also. And he became the father of the circumcised, and that means the believing circumcised, the believing Jews, who are not only circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of faith. That's how we know they're believing Jews because they're not only circumcised Outwardly, but they also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, which means they are circumcised inwardly. That faith which Abraham, while he had when he was still uncircumcised, the Jews who believe in Abraham also have that same faith. So basically, that's just a long way of saying Abraham is the father of us all, Jew as well as Greeks. And notice there that all does not mean all without exception, all individually. It means all, all of every sort of group. Jew and Gentile, which all can often mean in the scriptures, and oftentimes people don't realize that. We go down to Romans 4.17, which unfortunately is right in the middle of a sentence. So i got to go back and read in verse 16. He is the father of us all, verse 16, verse 17, in God's sight. He is the father of us all in God's sight. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. This is I, God, have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. He believed in God. Remember, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. All right, first, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, Paul says. Written where? Genesis 17, 4 through 5. As for me, my covenant is with you. I, as for me, God, my God, covenant is with you, Abraham. You will become the father of many nations. So that's a direct quote that Paul's making of Genesis 17, verse 4. And in fact, the word Abraham means father of many nations because we read in verse 5 of Genesis 17, your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham means father of many nations. So I'm going to name you Abraham because that's what your name means. And of course, many nations means the Gentiles, not just the Jews. I have made... Abraham is the father of us all, including Gentiles, as it is written, I made you father of many nations. So Paul is quoting that verse to show that the Gentiles are included in the salvation plan of God. We read in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, John says this, and they sang a new song. These are the martyrs under the altar, I think. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe and language and people and nation, that means all the nations. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And of course, that's the church. And they will reign on the earth. So the church will reign on the earth eventually. And Abraham will then be the father of many nations. Paul says in Romans 4:17, He, Abraham, believed in God who gives life to the dead. When did God give life to the dead? Well, probably he's talking about how God made Sarah's dead womb alive by putting Isaac in it. That's the primary reference according to the NIV study Bible. They were so dead, and not only Sarah's womb was dead, but Abraham's sperm was probably dead too. They were dead. But then God gave life to the dead and caused things into existence that do not exist. That would be Isaac. He was called into existence. That's probably the primary reference. The NIV study Bible says there's a secondary reference, the resurrection of Jesus. 
Paul gives, uh, God gives life to the dead, the dead body of Jesus, and call things into existence that do not exist. That's the resurrected Jesus. And, of course, that also follows that those who believe in Jesus are also called from death into life. Why does the NIV Study Bible say that Paul might be referring to the resurrection of Jesus? Because if we look down about seven verses later, which we will do in this audio, Romans 4.24.25 says this, It will be credited to us who believe in him, that's faith, will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's your death to life theme. And so maybe Paul has that idea when he's writing in Romans 4.17. He's probably making an analogy saying, look, God took Abraham and Sarah. They were good as dead, and he, and he gave new life through them. And likewise, Jesus does the same thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he was trying to make a parallel there. Now, I think we could make an application here. If God can take Abraham, good as dead, and call things into existence that do not exist, that being Isaac, well, also Isaac's descendants did not exist either. The physical Jews, and then the Jews who believed, and then Jesus, who was the seed of Abraham and Isaac, and then all of us who believe in Jesus, and then now we've got the church all over the world, and Abraham being the father of many nations. That was called into existence, and it did not exist before. It's an amazing thing. I was one thing when I was having intellectual doubts about Christianity, and I started studying about how the church got started and was so oppressed and so persecuted and so it was just so unlikely. How in the world is, is there over a billion Christians today? And I realize it's the providence of God and that God did make, did fulfill this promise of making the, of Abraham the father of many nations and the, and the the belief in God cover the world as the waters cover the sea. There's no explanation for it except that God is real and he's true. Now, I realize that's not a perfect argument because you could say the th- same thing about Islam or Mormons or something like that. But still, well, I, I do have a, a spiritual explanation for that. The, the devil tries to compete with God in every way possible. That's his very nature, and so he deceives people. But still, it is a remarkable thing that Abraham is the father of many nations, and that, and that verse was absolutely fulfilled today. We go to Romans 4, verse 18. He believed, that's Abraham believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. According to what had been spoken? Well, that was spoken in Genesis 15:5. He, God, took him, Abraham, outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he, God, said to Abraham, your offspring will be that numerous, which is another th- way of saying, so will your descendants be. Your descendants will be just like all those stars up there that you can count. Numberless, numberless, innumerable, uncountable. Now Abraham believed he had faith, hoping against hope. That strange English expression means hoping when there is no hope left. When all human means of fulfilling God's promises have failed. When all seemed hopeless. He believed anyway. So faith is operative when there's no hope left. Abraham is our mentor when it comes to faith. Now, what did Abraham believe? He believed, well, he believed that he would have many descendants. He believed the promises of land, offspring, and blessing. Now, that word hope is a little bit ambiguous in the English. We have an idea of hope like, I hope I win the lottery. We don't really have a confident expectation that we're going to win the lottery. We just wish that we do. We we hope and hope. In a, say there's a 50% probability that it might ha- happen, but in Greek, the word is much more definite than that. 
It's not a mere wish that something might happen. It's a confident expectation that something in the future will happen. For example, I hope the sun rises in the east tomorrow. Well, of course it's going to rise in the east. I really should have used that example first, not a hope to win the lottery, because I don't think Christians ought to be playing the lottery. It was a bad example. But if you say, I hope the weather is clear tomorrow, well, you don't really know whether the weather's going to be clear. We use the word in both senses, in the sense of wish, in the sense of hope. The Greek is elpis, and Thayer's lexicon defines elpis, elpis as, quote, confident expectation. So Abraham, even though he had no reason to have confident expectation, nevertheless had confident expectation that he would be the father of many nations, even though he only had one child, and it took him till he was 99 years old to get that one child. That English word hope and the ambiguity of it is very similar to Chinese. In Chinese, in China, I would have a lot of English-speaking Chinese people say to me, I, 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 hope, I hope you get a good job, and they say, I wish so. And uh, I said, there's something about that is not right. And they kept using the word wrongly, and I couldn't figure out why they were using it wrong. And finally, I figured out that wish means it's something that you want for, but you think it's probably not going to happen. It shows a lot less confidence, but hope is more confident. But anyway, we go to verse 19 of Romans 4. He, that's Abraham, considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about 100 years old, 99 to be exact. And also considered the deaf deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in the faith. Now, this is interesting because Abraham did have some anxious moments, as the NIV study Bible pointed out. In Genesis 17, 17 through 18, we read this. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. This is when God told Abraham, that he that the promise was going to be through Sarah and not through other fleshly means that Abraham had adopted earlier. Now, as I said, 100 years old was a round number. He was actually 99 years old, according to John Gill. Now, a 90-year-old woman give birth is remarkable, of course. 90 years old having a baby. But what was even more remarkable than that, it was her first baby. She had never given birth before. Now, as I said, in general, his faith did not weaken. Paul says here in Romans 4 that Abraham did not weaken in the faith. But let's look at that a little closer Closer now. I'm, g I'm going to give you a summary of events that happened concerning Abraham. First, Abraham and Sarah were childless, childless, and then God promised Abraham a son in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Abraham was then about 75 years old. Many years go past. I don't, the exact number, I don't know. Let's just say five years go by. Years later, he still had no son, so Abraham concluded that God meant for him to adopt a son. So he, had, he wanted to adopt his servant Eliezer and have a lineage through him and fulfill the promise of descendants through Eliezer. But that didn't work either because God, in Genesis 15, says, Nope, nope, the son's going to come from your own body, not Eliezer. Now, you could take that as a lack of information that, that Abraham just didn't know how the promise was going to be fulfilled. So it wasn't really doubt. He still believed in the promise. He just didn't know how God was going to fulfill that promise. And so that's that. That's the tack we're going to take here. He's going to show some wavering, but he believed in the ultimate promise. He just wasn't sure how the promise was going to be carried out. So some more time goes by after Genesis 15. Then we get to Genesis 16, and Abraham's now 86 years old, still no son, as God had promised. So Abraham concluded that God wanted him to take another woman and have a son through her, so he took Hagar, his concubine, and had a son, Ishmael. Well, we know how that turned out. Not so good. There was a lot of family friction, and Hagar and Ishmael got booted out of the family. 
ended up almost dying in the desert down there in Shur on the way to Egypt. A lot of that was because of Sarah's jealousy, and she impelled Abraham to kick Ishmael and Hagar out. And so that was not the way to fulfill the promise. He was trying to fulfill it. Now, it shows that he was using fleshly means, but he still believed in the promise. He believed that God was going to do it. He just didn't know how God was going to do it. And he sort of short-circuited God a little bit, got ahead of God, got ahead of God in his flesh. But he still believed, he still believed that he was going to have descendants. More years go by. So we go past Genesis 16. Now we're in Genesis 17. Abraham is 99 years old. And then God reveals to him that the promised son will come via Sarah. At news of this, Abraham left and God told him to name his promised son Isaac, which means he laughed. Now, there's a big question here in Genesis 17. Did Abraham laugh in doubt and unbelief or did he laugh with delight? Well, if he laughed with delight, obviously he still believes in the promise. And we don't have any problem with Paul saying in Romans 4 that Abraham's faith didn't weaken. But if he laughed in derision and in doubt, well, then we do have a problem. But we can say well, he might have laughed at the possibility of it, but he still believed in the promise. He just didn't know how it was going to happen. But at any rate, even though you have strong faith, there's nothing easy about it. It is hard to believe when you're hoping against hope and you see no hope. It is real hard to believe. Just like the children in the Chronicles of Narnia, they're walking around in a perpetual snowstorm and waiting for the winter to end, the endless winter to end, and it never does. And when is Aslan coming? Got to have faith. Here's John Calvin quoted by Cranfield, the commentator. Concerning faith, quote, let us also remember that we are all in the same condition as Abraham. Our circumstances are all in opposition to the promise of God. He promises us immortality, yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that he accounts us just, yet we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious, merciful, and benevolent towards us, yet outward signs threaten his wrath. What then are we to do? We must close our eyes disregard ourselves and all things connected with us so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. It's just like right now. I don't see any hope for America. There's so much sexual perversion and corruption everywhere in our culture today and so much unbelief and anger toward Christians and toward God and hatred and, and disregard of, of God. But I believe that God's going to establish his kingdom. I'm not worried about it. It's going to happen. I don't like what's happening, but I know that God will establish his word. Now, notice in verse 16 of Romans, uh, verse 19, excuse me, of Romans 4, that Abraham considered his own body to be already dead. Well, that's because 99-year-old men don't have kids, usually. And so he considered his body, and the NIV translates that as he faced the fact that his body was dead. Faith does not refuse to face reality. Now, this is a subtle point, but having been around a bunch of blab it and grab it, scream it and redeem it, mark it and park it, confess and possess it, hyper-faith Christians who will constantly say, I can't say anything bad about that. No, 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 because I might show my unbelief and therefore I might cause it not to happen. It becomes witchcraft. I say good things and my words cause good things to happen. That's witchcraft, folks. That's not Christianity. And, and, and refusing to look at reality and say, oh, oh, it's not a problem. I don't want to say that the, I'm looking at something real, but I don't want to say it's real. I don't want to say I'm sick, even though I am sick, because that would show I don't have faith. That is absolute nonsense. Let me tell you a joke. There was three Christians. They were on an airplane flight together. One was a Baptist, one was a Presbyterian, and one was a faith message guy, a hyper-faith guy. And unfortunately, the plane went down. And so as they were standing around the gates of hell, wondering how in the world they had ended up there, 
the Presbyterian man said, I just don't understand this. I knew that I was in the elect, predestined from the foundation of the world, that I was going to heaven. And so the Presbyterian says, I don't understand that. I was predestined to go to heaven from before the foundation of the world, and here I am in hell. I don't understand this. And the Baptist guy said, I don't understand it either. I was baptized in water. I went to church every Sunday. I listened to all those John 3.16 salvation sermons. I believed in Jesus, and here I am in hell. And I gave money to the building program, and here I am in hell. I don't understand this. So the faith message guy looked at him and said, guys, this ain't hell, and it ain't hot. You get the point. We don't need Christian science. Christian scientism is not faith. Faith is you look the stuff in the eye, the bad stuff, and you say, God, here is the situation. It is bad. I am telling you about it. I want you to somehow deliver me because I believe in you. Romans 4, verses 20 and 21. He, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Notice he had to be strengthened. In other words, his faith was at one level, and then it got stronger. It had to be after all what he went through, through Eliezer, through Hagar. And then finally, Sarah's an old woman gave birth. And that's another thing. God, a lot of times, holds back his reward, his blessing, so that when you finally get it, you are so appreciative of it. You say, God, I thought this was never going to happen, and here it is. Oh, thank you, Lord. You give glory to God, just like Abraham did. He was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what he had promised, that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was also able to perform. Now, the NIV study Bible says concerning glory, Works are man's mere attempt to get a claim on God. But faith, on the other hand, brings glory to God. Glory to God. Romans 4.22, Therefore it, his Abraham's faith, was credited to him for righteousness. Because Abraham had faith. Therefore, because he had faith. Therefore, because. Because he was fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Therefore, because of that. Because he was fully convinced of the truth of that promise. It was credited to him for righteousness. His belief, his faith, his being convinced was credited to him for righteousness. Faith is how one becomes righteous and not because of Abraham's works. That's how Abraham became righteous. Remember our key verse here, Genesis 15:6. Abram believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Verse 23 and 24 of Romans 4. Now it was credited to him, faith was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone. But also for us, it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Abraham believed in his God who brought life, Isaac, from the dead, Sarah. Sarah's womb was dead and life came from that dead womb. Likewise, we believe in Jesus who brings life from the dead. Our dead corpse of a pre-Christian life, pre-Christian body is now made alive again by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Romans 4.25, he Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 53.12. According to the NIV Study Bible, I'm not going to read you 53.12 from the English translation, which comes from the Masoretic text. It's so different, I don't even recognize it. These words were probably quoted from a Christian confessional formula. According to the NIV Study Bible, he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Imagine if you would, you were in an Episcopal church and you're going through the liturgy and you say he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Delivered up is from the Greek word paradidomi, which means to, here's Thayer's definition, to give over, to give into the hands of another, to give over into one's power or use, to deliver one up to be judged, condemned, punished, scourged, tormented, put to death, or to be put to death. In other words, delivered up is sort of a mild term, but when you flesh it out with its full meaning and definition, 
It means Jesus was tortured for us, for our sins, and he was raised up in the resurrection for our righteousness, for our justification. Notice that crucifixion and, res- and resurrection go together. His work on the cross and his resurrection, those are two different things that he underwent, and both of them are very important. Killing of sin, wiping away the effects of sin by the crucifixion, and then wiping away death with the resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Romans 4. We'll take up Romans 5 in the next audio. In Romans 5, we will continue to talk about faith, a very important aspect of Paul's doctrine in Romans, and more particularly, we'll talk about the peace that comes with that faith, how we avoid God's wrath and we have peace with God. See you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.